This is Chapter 42 of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 42 Chalon Has a Nice Roomy Dungeon. Switzerland is simply a large, humpy, solid rock with a thin skin of grass stretched over it. Consequently, they do not dig graves, they blast them out with powder and fuse. They cannot afford to have large graveyards, the grass skin is too circumscribed and too valuable, it is all required for the support of the living. The graveyard in Zermatt occupies only about one-eighth of an acre. The graves are sunk in the living rock, and are very permanent. But occupation of them is only temporary. The occupant can only stay till his grave is needed by a later subject. He is removed, then, for they do not bury one body on top of another. As I understand it, a family owns a grave, just as it owns a house. A man dies, and leaves his house to his son, and, at the same time, this dead father succeeds to his own father's grave. He moves out of the house, and into the grave, and his predecessor moves out of the grave, and into the cellar of the chapel. I saw a black box lying in the churchyard, with skull and crossbones painted on it, and was told that this was used in transferring remains to the cellar. In that cellar the bones and skulls of several hundred of former citizens were compactly corded up. They made a pile eighteen feet long, seven feet high, and eight feet wide. I was told that in some of the receptacles of this kind in the Swiss villages the skulls were all marked and if a man wished to find the skulls of his ancestors for several generations back, he could do it by these marks, preserved in the family records. An English gentleman, who had lived some years in this region, said it was the cradle of compulsory education, but he said that the English idea that compulsory education would reduce bastardy and intemperance was an error. It has not that effect." He said there was more seduction in the Protestant than in the Catholic cantons, because the confessional protected the girls. I wonder why it doesn't protect married women in France and Spain. This gentleman said that among the poorer peasants in the Valais, it was common for the brothers in a family to cast lots to determine which of them should have the coveted privilege of marrying, and his brethren, doomed bachelors, heroically banded themselves together to help support the new family. We left Zermatt in a wagon, and in a rainstorm, too, for St. Nicholas about ten o'clock one morning. Again we passed between those grass-clad prodigious cliffs, specked with wee dwellings peeping over at us from velvety green walls ten and twelve hundred feet high. It did not seem possible that the imaginary chamois even could climb those precipices. Lovers on opposite cliffs probably kiss through a spyglass and correspond with a rifle. In Switzerland, the farmer's plough is a wide shovel, which scrapes up and turns over the thin, earthy skin of his native rock, and there the man of the plough is a hero. Now here, by our St. Nicholas Road, was a grave, and it had a tragic story. A ploughman was skinning his farm one morning, not the steepest part of it, but still a steep part, that is, he was not skinning the front of his farm, but the roof of it, near the eaves when he absent-mindedly let go of the plough-handles to moisten his hands in the usual way. He lost his balance, and fell out of his farm backward. Poor fellow, he never touched anything till he struck bottom fifteen hundred feet below. Note number one. This was on a Sunday. M.T. End of note number one.
We throw a halo of heroism around the life of the soldier and the sailor because of the deadly dangers they are facing all the time, but we are not used to looking upon farming as a heroic occupation. This is because we have not lived in Switzerland. From St. Nicholas we struck out for Visp, or Vispach, on foot. The rainstorms had been at work during several days and had done a deal of damage in Switzerland and Savoy. We came to one place where a stream had changed its course and plunged down a mountain in a new place, sweeping everything before it. Two poor but precious farms by the roadside were ruined. One was washed clear away and the bedrock exposed. The other was buried out of sight under a tumbled chaos of rocks, gravel, mud, and rubbish. The resistless might of water was well exemplified. Some saplings which had stood in the way were bent to the ground, stripped clean of their bark, and buried under rocky debris. The road had been swept away, too. In another place, where the road was high up on the mountain's face, and its outside edge protected by flimsy masonry, we frequently came across spots where this masonry had carved off and left dangerous gaps for mules to get over, and with still more frequency we found the masonry slightly crumbled, and marked by mule hoofs, thus showing that there had been danger of an accident to somebody. When at last we came to a badly ruptured bit of masonry, with hoof-prints evidencing a desperate struggle to regain the lost foothold, I looked quite hopefully over the dizzy precipice, but there was nobody down there. They take exceedingly good care of their rivers in Switzerland and other portions of Europe. They wall up both banks with slanting solid stone masonry, so that from end to end of these rivers the banks look like the wharves at St. Louis and other towns on the Mississippi River. It was during this walk from St. Nicholas, in the shadow of the majestic Alps, that we came across some little children amusing themselves in what seemed at first a most odd and original way, but it wasn't. It was in simply a natural and characteristic way. They were roped together with a string, they had mimic alpenstocks and ice-axes, and were climbing a meek and lowly manure-pile, with a most blood-curdling amount of care and caution. The guide at the head of the line cut imaginary steps, in a laborious and painstaking way, and not a monkey budged till the step above was vacated. If we had waited, we should have witnessed an imaginary accident, no doubt, and we should have heard the intrepid band hurrah when they made the summit, and looked around upon the magnificent view, and seen them throw themselves down in exhausted attitudes for a rest in that commanding situation. In Nevada I used to see the children play at silver mining. Of course, the great thing was an accident in a mine, and there were two star parts, that of the man who fell down the mimic shaft, and that of the daring hero who was lowered into the depths to bring him up. I knew one small chap who always insisted on playing both of these parts, and he carried his point. He would tumble into the shaft and die, and then come to the surface and go back after his own remains. It is the smartest boy that gets the hero part everywhere. He is head guide in Switzerland, head miner in Nevada, head bullfighter in Spain, etc. But I knew a preacher's son, seven years old, who once selected a part for himself compared to which those just mentioned are tame and unimpressive. Jimmy's father stopped him from driving imaginary horse-cars one Sunday, stopped him from playing captain of an imaginary steamboat next Sunday stopped him from leading an imaginary army to battle the following Sunday, and so on. 
Finally the little fellow said, "'I've tried everything, and they won't any of them do. What can I play?' "'I hardly know, Jimmy, but you must play only things that are suitable to the Sabbath day.' Next Sunday the preacher stepped softly to a back-room door to see if the children were rightly employed. He peeped in. A chair occupied the middle of the room, and on the back of it hung Jimmy's cap. One of his little sisters took the cap down, nibbled at it, then passed it to another small sister, and said, "'Eat of this fruit, for it is good.' The reverend took in the situation. Alas, they were playing the expulsion from Eden. Yet he found one little crumb of comfort. He said to himself, "'For once Jimmy has yielded the chief role. I have been wronging him. I did not believe there was so much modesty in him. I should have expected him to be either Adam or Eve.' This crumb of comfort lasted but a very little while. He glanced around and discovered Jimmy standing in an imposing attitude in a corner, with a dark and deadly frown on his face. What that meant was very plain. He was impersonating the deity. Think of the guileless sublimity of that idea. We reached Wiesbach at 8 p.m., only about seven hours out from St. Nicholas, so we must have made fully a mile and a half an hour and it was all downhill, too, and very muddy at that. We stayed all night at the Hôtel de Soleil. I remember it because the landlady, the portier, the waitress, and the chambermaid were not separate persons, but were all contained in one neat and chipper suit of spotless muslin, and she was the prettiest young creature I saw in all that region. She was the landlord's daughter, and I remember that the only native match to her I saw in all Europe was the young daughter of the landlord of a village inn in the Black Forest. Why don't more people in Europe marry and keep hotel? Next morning we left with a family of English friends and went by train to Brevet, and thence by boat across the lake to Uchi, Lausanne. Uchi is memorable to me, not on account of its beautiful situation and lovely surroundings, although these would make it stick long in one's memory, but as the place where I caught the London Times dropping into humor. It was not aware of it, though. It did not do it on purpose. An English friend called my attention to this lapse, and cut out the reprehensible paragraph for me. Think of encountering a grin like this on the face of that grim journal. Erratum. We are requested by Reuters Telegram Company to correct an erroneous announcement made in their Brisbane telegram of the second inst published in our impression of the fifth inst, stating that, quote, Lady Kennedy had given birth to twins, the eldest being a son, unquote. The company explained that the message they received contained the words, quote, Governor of Queensland, twins' first son, unquote. Being, however, subsequently informed that Sir Arthur Kennedy was unmarried and that there must be some mistake, a telegraphic repetition was at once demanded. It has been received to-day, 11th inst., and shows that the words really telegraphed by Reuters' agent were, quote, Governor Queensland turns first sod, unquote, alluding to the Maryborough Jimpic Railway in course of construction. The words in italics were mutilated by the telegraph in transmission from Australia, and reaching the company in the form mentioned above gave rise to the mistake. I had always had a deep and reverent compassion for the sufferings of the prisoner of Shillan, whose story Byron had told in such moving verse. 
so I took the steamer and made pilgrimage to the dungeons of the castle of Chillon, to see the place where poor Bonivar endured his dreary captivity three hundred years ago. I'm glad I did that, for it took away some of the pain I was feeling on the prisoner's account. His dungeon was a nice, cool, roomy place, and I cannot see why he should have been dissatisfied with it. If he had been imprisoned in a St. Nicholas private dwelling, where the fertilizer prevails, and the goat sleeps with a guest, and the chickens roost on him, and the cow comes in and bothers him when he wants to muse, it would have been another matter altogether. But he surely could not have had a very cheerless time of it in that pretty dungeon. It has romantic window-slits that let in generous bars of light, and it has tall, noble columns, carved apparently from the living rock, and what is more, they are written all over with thousands of names, some of them, like Byron's and Victor Hugo's, of the first celebrity. Why didn't he amuse himself reading these names? Then there are the couriers and tourists, swarms of them every day. What was to hinder him from having a good time with them? I think Bonivard's sufferings have been overrated. Next we took the train and went to Martigny, on the way to Mont Blanc. Next morning we started about eight o'clock on foot. We had plenty of company, in the way of wagon-loads and mule-loads of tourists and dust. This scattering procession of travellers was perhaps a mile long. The road was uphill, interminable uphill, and tolerably steep. The weather was blisteringly hot, and the man or woman who had to sit on a creeping mule or in a crawling wagon and broil in the beating sun was an object to be pitied. We could dodge among the bushes and have the relief of shade, but those people could not. They paid for a conveyance, and to get their money's worth, they rode. We went by the way of the Tete Noire, and after we reached high ground there was no lack of fine scenery. In one place the road was tunneled through a shoulder of the mountain. From there one looked down into a gorge with a rushing torrent in it and on every hand was a charming view of rocky buttresses and wooded heights. There was a liberal allowance of pretty waterfalls, too, on the Tete Noire route. About half an hour before we reached the village of Archantière, a vast dome of snow with the sun blazing on it drifted into view and framed itself in a strong V-shaped gateway of the mountains, and we recognized Mont Blanc, the monarch of the Alps. With every step after that this stately dome rose higher and higher into the blue sky, and at last seemed to occupy the zenith. Some of Mont Blanc's neighbors, bare, light-brown, steeple-like rocks, were very peculiarly shaped. Some were whittled to a sharp point, and slightly bent at the upper end, like a lady's finger. One monster sugar-loaf resembled a bishop's hat. It was too steep to hold snow on its sides, but had some in the division. While we were still on very high ground, and before the descent toward Argentier began, we looked up toward a neighboring mountain-top, and saw exquisite prismatic colors playing about some white clouds which were so delicate as to almost resemble gossamer webs. The faint pinks and greens were peculiarly beautiful. None of the colors were deep, they were the lightest shades. They were bewitching commingled. We sat down to study and enjoy this singular spectacle. The tints remained during several minutes, flitting, changing, melting into each other, paling almost away for a moment, then reflushing, a shifting, restless, unstable succession of soft opaline gleams, shimmering over that air-film of white cloud, 
and turning it into a fabric dainty enough to clothe an angel with by and by we perceived what those super-delicate colors and their continuous play and movement reminded us of it is what one sees in a soap-bubble that is drifting along catching changes of tint from the objects it passes a soap-bubble is the most beautiful thing and the most exquisite in nature that lovely phantom fabric in the sky was suggestive of a soap-bubble split open and spread out in the sun i wonder how much it would take to buy a soap-bubble if there was only one in the world one could buy a hatful of koh-i-noors with the same money no doubt we made the tramp from martigny to argentier in eight hours we beat all the mules and wagons we didn't usually do that we hired a sort of open baggage wagon for the trip down the valley to chamonix and then devoted an hour to dining this gave the driver time to get drunk he had a friend with him and this friend also had time to get drunk when we drove off the driver said all the tourists had arrived and gone by while we were at dinner but said he impressively be not disturbed by that remain tranquil give yourselves no uneasiness their dust rises far before us rest you tranquil leave all to me i am king of drivers behold down came his whip and away we clattered i never had such a shaking up in my life the recent flooding rains had washed the road clear away in places but we never stopped we never slowed down for anything we tore right along over rocks rubbish gullies open fields sometimes with one or two wheels on the ground but generally with none every now and then that calm good-natured madman would bend a majestic look over his shoulder at us and say ah you perceive it is as i have said i am the king of drivers every time we just missed going to destruction he would say with tranquil happiness enjoy it gentlemen it is very rare it is very unusual it is given to few to ride with the king of drivers and observe it is as i have said i am he he spoke in french and punctuated with hiccups his friend was french too but spoke in german using the same system of punctuation however the friend called himself the captain of mont blanc and wanted us to make the ascent with him he said he had more ascents than any other man forty-seven and his brother had made thirty-seven his brother was the best guide in the world except himself but he yes observe him well he was the captain of mont blanc that title belonged to none other the king was as good as his word he overtook that long procession of tourists and went by it like a hurricane the result was that we got choicer rooms at the hotel in chamonix than we should have done if his majesty had been a slower artist or rather if he hadn't most providentially got drunk before he left argentier chapter forty two